0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. We go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you've joined me today. And what can I say, people? Sometimes I hit a wall and there's nothing to do but just keep going and break through that wall. Ideally, it's one of those fake walls that actors get to charge through. And sometimes it's not, it's solid brick. And you come through it, but only at a great expense. Dizzy from bashing your skull against something that did not move. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, as the poet said, although the poet didn't actually say that. as Rabbi Burns, our old Scottish friend who was speaking in his particular language, and he said, the best laid schemes o' oh, mice and men gang aft agley." I'm okay with the updated version, which gets at the meaning and is a nifty little phrase. What are these best plans of mine? best laid plans of mine that have gone awry, my schedule, my scheduled episodes, I was hit by some kind of heaviness recently, my brick wall that I had to push through, call it a post-pandemic pushing through, although we're still in the pandemic globally, but we've gotten out of the house now here where I am, and I'm easing back to life, to work, to life, to all that, and some of it is wonderful, and the bigger part of it fills me with dread, and so I turn to a poet, one of my old standbys, Mr. William Wordsworth, to help me make sense of it, and I'm going to postpone our look at Tristram Shandy and Laurence Stern and Machado. Poor Machado, he always gets postponed, but we have the conversation all ready to go. We just need to put a little context around it, and then we'll get that episode out to all of you. I know our Brazilian friends are eagerly waiting. First, we need to dig into this poem of Wordsworth's, which I needed and I'm glad to share. The world is too much with us. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's often anthologized, often listed among Wordsworth's best best poems in English. In fact, a much-loved poem. It's all about this feeling, Ah, oh, this feeling I have now. I read a lot of poems, actually, and I read a lot looking for help. I went to haiku. I went to Elizabeth Bishop. I went all over the place, searching and seeking, trying to find something that would calm me down and ease my troubled waters. Did this poem help? We will see. Let me tell you the problem. Here's how I felt. Life is very, very busy. I think I've told you that before. I'm stuck in the sandwich. My parents are retired and not getting any younger. My kids are not out of the house and growing up too fast. Both sides are a squeeze. Healthcare issues all over the place. Not mine, thankfully, but that's always looming, especially for the seniors in our lives. Healthcare. College just around the corner, expenses, uncertainty. It's led to work as it does for most people. And I work harder than I would like to be working, as do most people. It's really hard to get around this unless you're born into wealth or marry into it, which is fine if that's you, but if not, not. And in usual times, I add on to all of this a commute, a horribly long commute. I make the best of it because it's mostly on the train but it's really hideous. You'd all hate it. You'd probably hate my job, too. All the work, all the travel. Somehow I'm stuck in all of these things that no one would wish on their worst enemy, and I do it because I'm the breadwinner, and I'm stepping up, and that's a responsible thing to do, and in many, many ways, I'm very, very fortunate. I have wonderful kids, a nice place to live. They go to good schools and so on. Reasonable health in all. I'm fortunate. But as things get cranking back up, that's the other exhausting thing. All the extracurriculars, the driving here, the driving there, the practices, the lessons, and on and on. It's all by my choice. I'm not looking for sympathy here. I'm just giving you context. Life is a scramble, even when it's going well. The best of times, it's barely manageable. I have a to-do list that is five miles long. The things I truly want to do get pushed way down on the list. The things I have to do and hate doing all bubble up to the top. <laughs> is that how your to-do list looks? Kind of upside down, isn't it? But that's life, I guess. Show me the person who has a life that's right side up and I'll show you someone who is most likely dependent on others and not being dependent upon. And that's in good times. When something goes wrong, we spin into chaos. And in many ways, this is fine. It's good. Before I had kids, I visited some friends of mine. They were about 10 years older than me or so. And they had a little toddler and an infant. Adorable kids, but also needy, as we all are when we're that age. And my wife and I were visiting for dinner and bedtime. And the kids were doing what kids do, creating wrecking havoc in the household. And it was a little overwhelming to see. I had known this couple before. They had kids, urbane, sophisticated, sort of like Nick and Nora, floating through life on charm and wit and, and so on. And now they were harried, harassed, desperate, chasing, exhausted. And I thought, oh no, how do they do it? I want to have kids. How could I ever get up what I have for this? I don't think I have the strength or the energy. And my friend happened to say, I know this looks hard, but you can do it. And the good thing about doing this is you feel totally maxed out. The end of the day, you feel totally maxed out. I must have looked surprised when he said that. Maxed out? Was that a good thing? (laughs) It didn't sound good to me. And he said, you go to sleep every night knowing that you filled every second of the day with as much as you could. You gave and gave and gave. You brought all your energy, all your powers. You didn't get everything done, but you can't look at it that way. It's not how much you didn't do, but how much you did do. And you'll always have done absolutely. When you have kids and you work hard, you'll always have done absolutely as much as you could do in every day. That gave me a good perspective. I feel good when I'm being productive when I'm maxed out, when I'm filling my days with solid work and solid creativity and solid child raising. I feel lousy when I'm tired and idly letting my computer replace my thinking in my mind, filling my mind with junk. It's a lot like eating well versus eating poorly. It's so easy and tempting to eat the junk it feels so horrible when you do it. One bite? Amazing. Why have I deprived myself of this gorgeous cupcake? My brain is awash with chemicals that are very pleasing to me and then after you eat the whole thing, maybe half of another one, you sink back into your crummy chair, stuffed, glutted And you think, uh, maybe a vegetable would have been a better choice. Now I'm all twitchy. and So, fast life, too fast. The pandemic hits. Quarantine is imposed. Suddenly all this activity cuts off. All this running around, all this kinetic energy, all the crackle of modern life, it's just unplugged. It's like snow days, months worth of snow days. And there's a whole flip side that I won't talk about here. The loneliness, the isolation, the fear of the disease, the grief, and the loss. A lot of bad things happened along with the quarantine. There's no question about that. And for some people, those were overwhelming, understandably. And for some people, maybe most people, it was mixed. There were good things, too. There was a a sense of calm, a relief of quiet. Maybe what I'm really trying to say here is that the world was different. It has been very, very different for the last year. And what I really want to talk about is the chaos of the modern world. That's number one. I get some perspective from the quarantine. Helps me see the chaos for what it is. Our relationship. Here's number two, our relationship or my relationship with nature. The quarantine was like a reset button. But now we're headed right back into the thick of it. We're going back to how things once were, except I can feel that I've changed. And I'm not sure what that will mean. Wordsworth will be here to help me through it. Maybe we will see. So first question, why Wordsworth? Hmm. Well, I have a line running through my head. It's been running through my head ever since college, actually, which was where I first encountered this poem, thanks to some assigned reading. The line or lines, again, guess what, people? It turns out I misread the first line. All these years, the first line has been in my head like a mantra. The whole poem, really, has been there, and yet I've misremembered it. (laughs) I managed to bungle things once again, the risk of sounding blasphemous. However, let me say that I think my reading is actually better, at least to my ear. Don't at me, bro. Unless you've spent 30 years hearing it my way, you have nothing to tell me on this. Yes, your way might be better. Yes, it might be Wordsworth's Intended way, but guess what? I'm reading this my way. I'll present it like that. You can decide how you want to hear it. I can be wrong. That's allowed. The line or lines are this. The first line The world is too much with us late and soon. Second line Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. That's how I hear it in my mind. The world is too much with us, late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Now, here's where the 18-year-old me misread things. Sent the rest of my adult life on (laughs) on a path toward mistake. There's a semicolon in the first line. Cutting that line in two, I miss that. I think it should read, the world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. That's the punctuation. But in my memory, I recalled it differently. I thought the semicolon came at the end of the first line. So it would read, the world is too much with us, late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Now, you can go ahead with the correct version if you want. I'll stick with mine. Thank you very much. The world is too much with us, late and soon. What does that mean? It's a striking phrase, a striking line. It seems like we know what it is. Every single one of those words is very common, very familiar. Nothing to unpack there as far as the meanings of individual words. And yet, what does it mean? The world is too much. Good. I get that. But too much with us. Late and soon. Hmm? That sounds like, it sounds like a phrase, but it isn't really. We say late or early. We say sooner and later. We say now and then. Those are the phrases. Late and soon. I'll keep going to give you the third line. This kind of closes it off. The world is too much with us. Late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature. That is ours. And again, I misremembered that line, too. These lines have been running through my head, and in three short lines, I have two mistakes. I misremembered the third line. And once again, I like my mistake a little better. I thought it was nothing we see in nature that is ours. I like that better than little. I'm sorry, Wordsworth. I know you worked very hard on this. You were the genius, and I'm the poor meager Citizen with ears and a feeble brain and a flailing heart, but I heard it as or remembered it as nothing we see in nature that is ours. Committing a little harder to the point. No wiggle room there. Not little. Nothing. So let's do Wordsworth with my mistakes. The world is too much with us late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Nothing we see in nature that is ours. And that's why this poem crowded its way to the front of my mind. Why it jumped the queue and got itself a whole episode. I'm coming out of the pandemic, which is exciting. We can go out now. The world is cranking back up. Thanks to the vaccine. Soon I'll be headed back to the office. The kids are going to school. Of course, it's better. It means the worst of the disease has passed where I live. That's nothing to take lightly. But why do I feel so anxious? Why do I feel so awful? Why do I have this sense of dread? Why do I have less energy, less excitement than I did when the quarantine began? Is it because I'm an introvert? or agoraphobic? Am I naturally an indoors person, comfortable at home, avoiding risks? Of course, I think it's more than that. I don't think this is just about me, except in the sense that I'm seeing the world with different eyes. Now, I could always see this, of course, every time I'm stuck in traffic. I hate traffic in the modern world. I hate the busyness of life. That's not new. But going through a year and more at home, has helped me see how I view nature and how I view other people and how I view progress and civilization. And it's not all that different from how Wordsworth viewed it 200 years ago. So let's do this. Let's take a quick break, make sure we've identified our problem, and then see if this famous poem by William Wordsworth can help us. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So here is the entire sonnet in all its glory. The world is too much with us, late and soon, Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. The sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours, and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God. I'd rather be a pagan, suckled in a creed outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasant lea, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn. Have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. Pretty basic, right? Basic to our ears, anyway. We've absorbed these themes, these romantic tropes. Boiled down, it might be this. Here's a summary. The materialist culture has overwhelmed us. Money is way too important. (laughs) What a word to trip over. Money is way too important. Money and things, let's say, we've lost touch of something truly important, which is the beauty of nature. Wouldn't it be better to be back in the ancient world where they believed that gods lived in nature and were part of it? It's an old and outdated religion, but at least we might see the power and beauty of nature if we could imagine those old gods lighting things up. We'd appreciate it more, and we'd feel better. That's the summary. Don't worry. We will go line by line and dig into this poem with more sophistication than that, but that's the general view and it might have been dramatic in 1802 when this was written to make this swerve back into ancient Greece and their religion. But as readers of poetry, for readers of poetry like us, it's kind of old hat. Now, an old hat, you know what, what to think about old hats. We don't even wear hats anymore. Larkin reminded us of that an episode or two ago, those Old folks in those photos are grandparents in their funny old hats. So Wordsworth is here telling us about his current situation in 1802. The decadent material cynicism, as he said in a letter. And he's looking to the past as well. Not seeing older people in funny hats, but those great Greek pagans. An old outdated religion, of course, is how he puts it inferior to a monotheistic God. Wordsworth doesn't really challenge that. But this is how bad things are. This is how he expresses what's been lost. We have lost something essential, he says. And what that implies to me is that if you think the world has gotten crazy, if it's spinning too fast, if all you're doing is getting and spending, maybe nature is the answer. Can you go to nature and stare at the stars, or watch the sunset, or gaze at the ocean. Can you restore that balance? Can you right the tilting ship of your mind? If I'm feeling that way, coming out of quarantine, oh my god, the treadmill is beginning, cranking up, about to launch into a speed I can't keep up with, the rat race is beginning. The little rat with the starter pistol glancing at his stopwatch. He's about to fire his gun. Here we go, my fellow rats. Glance to the rats to the left of me, rats to the right. That's how I feel. Overwhelmed in my rat-like crouch. My sprinter's crouch. Ready to ready to <laughs> ready to start. My mind is whirling around. I'm in need of coffee, but also. I drink too much coffee. I'm desperate. I'm breathy. If that's how I feel, can I go to nature to calm down? Can I use nature that way? Is nature there for me? Let's go back to Wordsworth. This poem was written around 1802. Where was he then in his life? He was 32 years old, already a poet, a successful one artistically, a revolutionary one, in fact. That's an interesting word for Mr. Wordsworth. He and Coleridge had published their lyrical ballads, which was transformative. The project was designed to take poetry out of the hands of the elite, out of their tight grip, the the tight grip of the upper crust, and put it into the hands, or the language at least, of the common person. And let's go a step further and say about this poem that we're consider- considering, that it kind of hits that sweet spot for me. It's smart. It's full of intelligence. It's not too rarefied or snobbish, but it's also, it doesn't go too far in the other direction. It's not trying too hard. Not. It's not an overcompensation. Wordsworth was from the upper class. He was not a shepherd. I find it a little irritating when Guys like Wordsworth adopt the shepherd's voice entirely. It's always a little affected, a little pretentious, and sometimes downright offensive. Look at me. I'm a hardworking servant girl. Here's how I talk. That kind of a poem written by some fop, some trust fund kid who looks around the world and sometimes happens to notice that there are poor people standing nearby and thinks, oh my, how fascinating, what a fascinating creature. That's not this poem. Wordsworth feels very human in it to me, just a guy, a guy who reads too much, maybe, who's kind of thinky, but a guy. I can identify with him. Not everyone can. William Carlos Williams couldn't. He hated England and the English upper class. They'd done something to his mother, and he inherited her resentment, and he said, world too much with us, rot. He viewed it as the language of empire, those romantic poets, and he believed that there would be hell to pay. A comeuppance was on its way for England. Let's save that story, because William Carlos Williams deserves his own episode. He was a a pretty... Interesting guy, Mike and I covered his story, the use of force, a while ago. One of my favorites. Quick little short story, nice gem. But we should talk. We should talk more about William Carlos Williams as a poet and a, just a general literary figure too. We will put that on our list. I want to give Wordsworth credit for something else, in addition to getting the tone right and the language right, the pitching this at the right level for me. He doesn't fall into that snobbish trap of saying, I see nature this way because I'm a poet. That's the other thing I can't stand. Rich guys and assertive poets. (laughs) Those are the two. I don't care that you're a genius and can live forever through your verse. Show me. Prove it. You don't have to tell me because that leaves me out. I'm not a genius poet like you. Well, okay, fine. I get it. You want me to know that when you see the ocean... You're an amazing superhero who sees things in this special way with your rarefied special soul. But do you really? Is that really true? I've known enough poets to know that's probably in your mind. Actually, that's probably what you want to think about yourself more than it actually is any great difference between you and me. I'd rather you just talk as a normal person who's thinking about these things and feeling them in your normal person voice. Give me your Clark Kent sensibility and not not your, your view of yourself as the guy who can melt things with your vision and freeze them with your super breath. Your poetic superhero costume and your ability to stop bullets with your chest and fly into outer space are not really going to help me. I'm sure they help you. I'm sure you can't believe your good fortune. If I were a superhero, no doubt I'd be amazed by myself, too. But I'm Clark Kent on my best days. And if you're writing a poem for me that you want me to read, I don't need to hear that you're going to live forever through your poetry. You don't need to tell me that. I need you to meet me halfway, Mr. Poet or Poet Man or whatever your superhero name is. So, Wordsworth in 1802 was 32 years old and successful, but still somewhat unsettled. Remember what he wanted as a poet. His two famous phrases about poetry and the Poetic Project. Poetry, he said, is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. That's good. I like that. We don't want a poet sliding words across the page like an accountant sliding the beads of an abacus from one side to the other. We want some feeling. We want some big muse energy. We want some gusto. His other phrase, emotions recollected in tranquility. So we don't just want a rant. We don't want some screed. We want our poet to have a little breathing room, some time to process, some time to reflect, some room to present with his intelligence as well as his feeling. Whoa we say, whoa, like we used to say to horses. We say that to the excited young poet who's just had an epiphany to shake the earth to its core. Take a deep breath. Now start again and tell me what you felt. Choose your words carefully. That's what Wordsworth wanted. Powerful feelings spontaneously overflowing. You take all that energy, that emotion, and you recollect it in tranquility. What was Wordsworth doing in 1802? He was going through some changes. Let's recap his life quickly. He was born in 1770, the second of five children. His father had been a lawyer who managed the estate of some rich earl I've never heard of. These always get handed to us like I'm supposed to have heard of them. I'm sorry that I don't. He was the first earl of Lonsdale, whatever that means. But for Wordsworth, that meant his family lived in a mansion in a small town up there in the Lake District, and he hardly ever saw his father, who was away on business. But his father had a library, and young William was encouraged to read widely and memorize poetry. William was attached to his sister Dorothy, who had a similar sensibility and love for literature, and who would be important to him throughout his life. That's another person we should do an episode on, just on Dorothy Wordsworth, actually. She's a great figure in the history of literature. She doesn't get discussed as much as she should. But today, we're looking at William. Their parents died when the kids were young. William was seven when his mother died, and he was sent away to live with some relatives after that. Dorothy was sent to a different household, and the two of them didn't see each other for nine years. Then a few years later... His father, their father, passed away. William Wordsworth was living with uncles now, attending schools. His mind filled with the poetry that his father had made him memorize. Shakespeare, Milton, and Spencer, that kind of thing. But he was also allowed to play. And when I, he grew older, I guess I guess I should say, instead of play, I guess I should say, he was allowed to roam outdoors. Nature was important to him up there in the Lake District. But it's important to note that it's not just a postcard-like set of scenery, but more of a sublime experience. Nature could terrify as well as delight. Nature was not, let's drive our car to the top. Well, they didn't have cars, of course, but not, as we might say, let's drive our car to the top of the hill and gaze out at the view. It was more like a rugged hike. You could get lost. You could be trapped. You could be caught in a storm. You could be attacked by wild animals. Fear and beauty Mixed together. The Romantics called this sublime. That's where that word picks up that connotation. The origin of it as an aesthetic term was one that they had picked up on from Edmund Burke, who, in his philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful, which came out in 1757, described sublime as the most powerful emotion we were capable of feeling, even when that was disturbing or upsetting. You could see it in, in the paintings of Turner, in the sea storms. You could see it in descriptions of violence. As Burke said, quote, Whatever is in any sort terrible or is conversant about terrible objects or operates in a manner analogous to terror, is a source of the sublime, end quote. And Wordsworth would soon experience another revolution as well. I started that. <laughs> Remember way back when, when I said revolutionary was a good word for Wordsworth? I was describing his poetry then, but he had another revolution in store for him. He went from his local school to Cambridge, where he didn't really fit in, didn't feel at home there, and in the summer, he went on a trip to France. This was 1791, and the revolution was afoot, and he was powerfully affected by his trip there. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, he later wrote. Wordsworth eventually turned against the revolution, horrified by the terror and the atrocities, and by the the turn to Napoleonic Empire and war, but even in that tranquility of objecting to events, he recalled his spontaneous overflow. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, he said, and the next phrase was, but to be young was very heaven. Wordsworth fell in love during that trip in France with a French woman named Annette. Their daughter was born a year later. But war had broken out, and Wordsworth didn't see his daughter until she was nine. That was in the year 1802, our year, the same year that he wrote The World is Too Much With Us. In fact, he wrote another sonnet about the experience of seeing his daughter. He saw Annette and his daughter Caroline in Calais. He had traveled there with Dorothy to see them. He was reunited with Dorothy now. They would hardly ever be apart, actually. And he was in the middle of his dramatic, poetic relationship with Coleridge. This was an incredibly fertile, productive period for Wordsworth, the poet. He saw his daughter and wrote a sonnet. I'm going to read this sonnet because it will give us another view of nature. And it was written in the same year as the the poem that we're focusing on. So let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with the sonnet he wrote after seeing his daughter for the first time. It is a beauteous evening, calm and free. The holy time is quiet as a nun, breathless with adoration. The broad sun is sinking down in its tranquility. The gentleness of heaven broods o'er the sea. Listen, listen. The mighty being is awake and doth with his eternal motion make a sound like thunder everlastingly. Dear child, dear girl that walkest with me here, if thou appear untouched by solemn thought, thy nature is not therefore less divine. Thou liest in Abraham's bosom all the year and worships at the temple's inner shrine. God being with thee, When we know it not. That's the sonnet. Abraham's Bosom might be a reference to the story from the Bible from Luke, in which a beggar Lazarus dies and is carried into Abraham's bosom, while a rich man dies and descends into hell. What is Wordsworth saying here? Daughter, dear daughter, you might seem untouched by solemn thought. That's a phrase people have puzzled over. I've read some speculation that his daughter may have had an impairment of some kind. I don't read it that way. The meaning I take is that the girl is innocent and angelic and Wordsworth thinks about her all the time. She's in his heart even when they're not together as she has been for nine years and now he's sort of overwhelmed. People are frustrated by our knowledge or lack of knowledge about this encounter. Dorothy and William refer to it, but they don't describe it in much detail. And some people say there's Wordsworth again, detached, disengaged, cold, icy, turning to poetry when he could be turning to life. I have a different view. I'm in the camp that thinks that Wordsworth was overwhelmed by his feelings here. Maybe this was too much emotion. He helped Caroline all his life So it's true he didn't exactly shower her with riches, but he was helpful. It seems that he loved her. But this was a tough visit, because what he was doing in France was to tell Annette, the French woman, that he was going to marry an English woman named Mary Hutchinson, one of his childhood friends. He had come into some money, which made the marriage possible. The Earl had been withholding money that had been owed to his father, that his father had worked for before he died. And finally, that got sorted out when Wordsworth now had money. And the other thing that was possible was that he could visit France for the first time. There was a temporary peace that allowed him to travel. So he could see his daughter and his former lover, the mother of his daughter, even as he had to tell them both goodbye in a sort of permanent way because he was getting married. I will. Not be your husband or your stepfather. Dear child, dear girl, you are like an angel. And here we are looking at the sea, which has a mix of everything in nature. The sun is tranquil. The heavens are gentle and brooding. There's also a perpetual sound like thunder. This is not just a a postcard. After all, there's energy here and movement and danger and darkness. It's gorgeous and glorious. But now, farewell. We'll always have Paris and Calais. It's a lot of change for Wordsworth. All that's in the background of this sonnet, The World is Too Much With Us, which is a better piece of work than It is a beauteous evening, calm and free, more like a Wordsworthian poem and less like a note scrawled in a greeting card or the lyrics to a hymn. It's in the form of a sonnet, as Wordsworth's masters employed. Let's turn to this poem now, by the way. (laughs) Did I mention that? Transition to The World is Too Much With Us. It's in the form of a sonnet, just like Shakespeare and Milton used, but it's the Italian or Petrarchan version of the sonnet. That's the form. The rhyme scheme, uh, A-B-B-A, A-B-A-B, going through that, that's not really interesting to anyone, except that it's here. It's followed, and what you do with it, that's what interests me. There's nothing inherently interesting about choosing a form. What's interesting is what it does for the reading of the poem. It gives us a bit of musicality and a degree of difficulty, perhaps, to admire, but there's nothing, there's nothing Im- important about <laughs> memorizing what the rhyme schemes are. You can just pick whatever rhyme scheme you want if you're a poet and make it work for the poem. What's more interesting, I think, is that the Italian sonnet follows an 8 plus 6 format in its 14 lines. Eight lines of argument or description and then a pivot with six lines of response. Wordsworth's poem breaks this right in the middle of line 9 with the great caesura. Which just means break or pause. The great caesura in the middle of line nine, where he stops. Great God, he says. Two words, exclamation mark. Talk about powerful emotions spontaneously overflowing. All that reason, all that argument in the first eight and a half lines, all that description of the world being too much, this material world is getting and spending, and now suddenly. A pause and an exclamation, great God, he interrupts himself. And we pivot to the world of longing for gods of nature to appear, a return to paganism, which might at least let us appreciate nature again. That's the response. What turns us to paganism? What words take us there? The words great God, exclamation mark. I love this break. The twist that it takes. I will imagine Wordsworth coming up with that. I will turn to paganism now, but by invoking God, not God's plural, great God, the God, the <laughs> God in heaven, the Father of Jesus. It doesn't say my God or dear God or even oh God, which would put the poet in a sort of worshipful stance firmly in the side of Christianity, but great God. That's the right transition, I think. It says, I know who God is. I believe in God. The Christian God is better. I get it. That's our God now. Pagan religion is an outworn creed, he says, but he wants to note it's got some pluses too, or we mortals might take a page out of that book at least. Maybe we lost something when we gave that up, but with a nod to great God to get us there. Okay, Let's go through this poem line by line, which was important for me to do today during the quarantine. And now as we start to emerge from it, maybe it's important for you to do as well. I heard from a lot of you that you went on walks. That was one of the biggest coping strategies that I heard from listeners. Was the world hushed and still? Did you appreciate nature? Some of these walks were in cities but that's okay with me. That's part of this dynamic. For me, there's something awe-inspiring of man-made nature, too. Manhattan is is like a waterfall or a lightning storm. Sublime and beautiful. It's different, of course. The obvious differences apply. I get it. It's different to be man-made and to be not touched by man. But there are similarities, too. You move through space. Your body's in space. You are... In a certain particular space, light affects you there, sounds, sights, all that happens in cities as well as in nature and during a time of quiet, whether that's really early in the morning or during a snowstorm, or I guess, as we've seen, a pandemic, you see the city in its true state which is a place that can give us a lot of what nature gives us, the beauty and the fear, the awe. Here, in this poem, the poet is on a pleasant lea, which is a meadow. He's looking at the sea. There's not too much wind. Usually it's windy here, he says, but not so much now. That's where we need to place ourselves for this poem. You've been to places like this, right? Maybe your place isn't a... A meadow looking at the sea. If you have to imagine yourself looking out at the fallen snow or across an expansive desert, that's fine too. That will work for our purposes today. It's not Wordsworth literally, but you can follow him in spirit. The point is that you gaze at a city or you internalize it. You live in civilization and then you go out into nature and you see if nature is there for you. And if so, what is it doing? And if not, why not? And what would make it better? Is there a hole in your heart or your soul, an absence of something that nature can fill? If not, what's the problem? That's our question. Presented by this poem. Okay, line by line. First eight lines or eight and change is the argument. The next six, or really five and a half, is the response. First three The world is too much with us, late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. That's simple, right? We talked about this a little bit. You know, all these words, they all make sense. We get it. The world is moving fast. We're addicted to money. We're even money grubbing, you might say. We don't appreciate how green the grass is or how nice the flowers smell. We're too busy with our greed. But look at these words. They're stranger than they seem at first. The world is too much with us. What does that mean? It's too much of something? Or it's with us too much? Or with us, the world is too much? Take your pick the meaning comes through. The phrase gives you what you need, and in some ways it gives you more. It's all just too much with us. It's not too much on its own. It's not saying there's something, there's a problem with the world. It's with us. That's the problem. If this tree falls It falls in its own way, pure and untouched. The problem isn't the tree, the problem is us. The world is not the natural world, it's the world we've created, civilization. And if we didn't catch that from the first seven words, the next couple of lines make it clear. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. More lines that sound simple but are a little trickier than they seem at first. Late and soon, What is? who says that? What does that mean, late in the day? Okay, but then why is it not early? Soon, meaning not long from now, but then why not soon and later, soon in the distant future? Some people read this as late and soon, meaning when you're old, that's late, and when you're young, that's soon, but why not just say old and young? I like to read it, Late and soon is time piling up on itself, time crowding its way in, frenzied time. Is it good to be late? No, you're rushed. Is it good when something is going to happen soon? No, you don't have enough time. You're rushed again. So these words that seem like they're opposites are actually related in spirit. Compare this with now and then. What does that mean? On occasion. Now. And then, then, you have time, right? It's going to happen then. It's going to happen later. We don't have later. We have late. Late and soon. We are late. Stuff happens too soon. It's all happening too fast. The world is spinning. We've created this nonstop modern world with our civilization. Everyone's in a hurry. You're late for the last appointment, and the next one is coming up soon. We're through the first line, and we have our dilemma. The world is all up in our business, making us feel hurried. If we didn't get that yet, the next three lines hammer at home. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Powers is good. What a great word. Remember our 18th century hero, Dr. Johnson, saying of his conversational partner, that fellow calls forth all my powers. Poets, intellectuals, people, we have powers. We have energy and thoughts, and we can do great things and think great things, but not if we're focused on the decadent material cynicism. Wordsworth's phrase from his letter. Nothing good about that. Getting and spending... We waste our powers. We lay waste our powers. We squander our powers, people. We squander what's important. It's not coins or trinkets or stuff. Those aren't our powers. We're squandering life, wasting our powers. But look at that phrase, getting and spending. We get stuff. We spend on stuff. You might think it should be spending and getting. That's the normal course of action, right? We spend money and we get things in return. But that would be too logical, too orderly. That would be like spending money to get groceries. That's a necessity. There's something logical about that. Proceeds nicely. It's important. It's essential. This is not that. Put it out of order and just limit it to the verbs. Getting spending it's all action it's a jumble or some have read it as getting money and spending money which seems meaningless doesn't even have an object it's not getting groceries it's the activity of getting and spending the implied object is money you get money you spend money easy come easy go is this all your life is You knock yourself out to get money, and then you spend it all. What a frivolous waste of time that is. When you remove the things from it, replace them with money, other than the plain necessities of food, clothing, and shelter, aren't most things frivolous wastes. Anyway, but Wordsworth just uses the verbs, which is better. Getting, spending, the activity of it, we know it's pointless. Third line, little we see in nature that is ours. Well, why should it be ours? What's ours? Little we see in nature that is ours. Here's where we see Wordsworth the poet and not Wordsworth the wealthy man at the turn of the century, because an industrialist, a business person, a landowner, a factory owner might have said, hang on, This is the Industrial Revolution. We have enclosed land so we can exploit it for our purposes. We have tamed land. We make it all work for us now. Land is wood to chop down and coal to dig up, and it's all to power our engines of progress. What do you mean little we see in nature that is ours? It's all ours. We own it. It's not the fish. It doesn't belong to the fish and the fowl and the beasts. It's ours. Ours. What do you mean it's not ours? It's ours, mine. (laughs) Wordsworth nods to this and the next line. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. A boon, a present, a gift is a good thing, but a sordid boon is not a good thing. It's a disgusting one, a bad idea, a false gift, not a gift, but a gift horse. We have no heart in this nature anymore. It used to help It used to inspire. It used to terrify. It used to be our connection to something larger than ourselves. Our spiritual side was here. Our soul lived here. We've thrown all that out the window by carving it up and turning it into just part of our getting and spending. You see your whole life is getting and spending and you see land is just something that either helps you get or gets in your way. You've lost something. That's the first four lines, all that. Let's plow through the next four and a half lines. Here's where Wordsworth reminds us of what we should see and don't. The sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours, and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. It moves us not. It's lost its power with us. We're out of tune with it. There's music here, but we don't hear it. We have our own music. Our music is the music of cash registers and coins dropping into the till. It's the flapping of bills and the pouring of black smoke out of smokestacks to make the stuff that nobody really wants and nobody really needs to make it all cheap That's the song of the day. Jingle, jangle, jingle. Money, money, money. Our tune should be the beauty of nature. Although even with the beauty, there's some sublimity too. The winds are dangerous. They'll be howling soon at all hours. But how wonderful it is when they're calm. Up gathered like sleeping flowers. It's that gorgeous moment when you have a quiet period. The chaos lets you appreciate it all the more. Just like exercise lets you appreciate rest. Hunger lets you appreciate food. Wordsworth would have understood that about the quarantine, how it's based on disease and devastation and there are hospitals full of people who can't breathe and hospital workers, those saints and angels who are desperately hanging on to their sanity. There are people who die without seeing their loved ones or holding their hands. And yet in the midst of all this, the streets have never been quieter. I could go out at noon on a weekday or at rush hour and be the only one on the road. And it was calming in a weird way, a calm purchased by death and fear. The winds will be howling, but they're like sleeping flowers now, gathered up. Though, so in his phrase, upgathered really drives that word home, doesn't it? Poetically, sonically, upgathered winds sleeping flowers it's beautiful to view nature in this way and see with her bosom bared what is that but a woman lying on her back waiting for a lover waiting quietly expressing the beauty of her nude body a woman's body being like a work of art as Seinfeld's Elaine used to say not that ugly looking male body twisted and weird this is a beautiful bosom, something you can bear, not just for breasts in the sexual way or in the heaving and swelling way, like as the sea might appear. I think that's there, but it's also the bosom of a mother, the beauty of womanhood, both as a work of art, but also as a nurturer, the portrait of a generous giver a feeder, part of the beauty of life, the whole spirituality of sex and motherhood all in one. But also, we might say, the kind of breasts that a man can have, too. The feeling of being exposed, willingly exposing yourself to the cosmos, not having your shirt torn open by someone for their purposes, but something you yourself choose to do. You bare your bosom. You unbutton those buttons. It's not just a Male gaze. It's a female with agency. She's giving herself to the moon. But she's deciding to have this experience, to give this bosom to the moon, to express herself this way. All this the moon, the sea, the quiet, the calm, the beauty, the hard, cold edge of danger that makes beauty something more than beauty. All that's lost to us now. We've given this part of us, the part that can appreciate this, away. We've Gotten material cynicism, and we spent our souls to get it and Now comes the turn, great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn, so might I standing on this pleasantly, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. Wreath, it is like spiral, the spiral seashell. What would be best? This pagan religion? No, it's a creed outworn. That's not best, but it would be better in some ways. Wordsworth is saying that it would be better. I'd feel better. I'd feel less lost and lonely, less forlorn. If I could look at the sea and see Proteus or hear Triton, two gods of the sea, sons of Poseidon. Wordsworth was in the thick of the first Industrial Revolution, which was 1760 to about 1820. This is about 40 years in. 40 years of steam power and textile factories. And in England, there were the enclosures, which have been going on for a few centuries, the tragedy of the commons, all the land that used to be there for the people to draw upon, to use for hunting or, or gathering. It's gone now. Their land is carved up, owned, sold off, exploited, used. But he's not gazing at a valley that used to be untouched farmland and is now a belching factory, or at a forest that used to be full of local peasants trapping game and picking berries. He's looking at the sea itself. Even the sea in his mind is no longer ours, no longer that part of nature that speaks to something essential inside us, something that we should connect with, and now we don't because we are out of tune with it. We have so distorted ourselves that we can't see things the right way or feel them. We're stunted now, and we've done that to ourselves. And you might say, we miss God, or we miss gods, plural, or we miss spirituality, we miss humility, we miss reverence for beauty. But the point is that we miss something. We miss X, however you view X. We miss X, and it's not coming back. And that's what the pandemic and the quarantine have done for me. It hasn't reminded me of what's important. It's reminded me of what's important that we've lost. And it seems like we've lost it for good. And this, when Wordsworth was writing, was all before climate change and the horrors of that reality. We've not only lost it, we're killing the thing that could help us get it back. And we can't stop getting and spending long enough to change that awful, seemingly inevitable fact. Maybe we will, but from where I sit, we look a lot more like that fabled man on Easter Island who cut down the last tree. No more trees here forever. But at least tonight, for one night, I'll have something to burn. And it's also, Wordsworth's poem is also coming before that buzzy wonder of the internet-addled brain, the 21st century brain. Think of the life in 1802, no Twitter, no Facebook, no, no phones, no airlines, no internet, no TV, no radio, no electricity in the homes, and it still felt busy, too busy. If you went back there now, you'd say, this is so quiet. (laughs) This is so quiet. We're just reading books by candlelight. Look at this. And yet it felt too busy to Wordsworth. Have things gotten any better or exponentially worse? There's something a little odd about Wordsworth saying he's lost this indescribable something, and 200 years later, we still lament that it was lost. How could I, Jack Wilson, in 2021, lose something that was lost a few hundred years ago? Well, that's a good question. Here's one answer. Maybe kids have it. Maybe I had it when I was a child, and the world seemed huge And the problems were all taken care of by somebody else. I wasn't thinking about jobs and rent and insurance and taking care of others or nature. I was thinking about the hot summer day and the squishy tar in the parking lot and how hard the dry dirt in the field felt underfoot and how scary the woods were and how good it felt to drink from the cold spring. It was a spring it prominent in my mind. It was a spring that was between two towns, two tiny little towns in Wisconsin. It was out there in the middle, a mile away from one, a mile away from the other. A mile away from civilization, just a pipe jammed into the earth and water perpetually bubbling out of it. After the long walk there, it seemed like a long walk to me at the time. You left town, the safety of civilization, where the roads were paved, and you walked through the trailer park, which had some friends of mine from school, but also a lot of grinding poverty and some horrible shouts and arguments and weird sights as people with problems attacked other people with problems or lived in an uneasy truce with them or sometimes had great passionate romances right there in front of the world. Why not? Life was short. But it was always a time when you passed the trailer park, it was always a time to walk a little faster or pedal the bike a little harder. And then you went past those fields with those crumbling corn stalks or the the grass that caught your ankles. And you sometimes cut a corner by climbing over a post, avoiding the barbed wire. But if you strayed too far away from the fence, you might hear the angry shotgun blast of the farmer. Firing into the sky to get you off his property. But it made your heart jump. Even though he was firing in the sky, it made your heart jump. Because who knew that he was firing into the sky? Angry people could be cruel. And if you lingered in the field too long, you might get chased by dogs. So instead, you stuck to the road. The old highway it was. And there was a brook that ran alongside it where you could sometimes stop and see a little fish or cute little frogs, or the terrifying sight of a water snake. You crossed the highway, sprinting as fast as you could, because the cars drove at impossibly fast speeds around the bend, and you never felt safe, even when it seemed quiet enough on that highway. And then you made it to the spring. You walked carefully across the planks that were laid down over the marshy mud, And the dock that stretched out into the pond and you approached that pipe and you put a hand under the bottom of the pipe to make the water shoot out of the top. That was a neat trick. The pipe had an open bottom and an open top. Two purposes. The grown-ups would fill old milk jugs with the water that came out of the bottom because it was good water and fresh. Excellent for drinking. But a traveler passing by could just stick his hand on the bottom, flatten his palm and stick his hand on the bottom and push the flowing water up to the top of the pipe where it came out at a perfect height. You leaned over and let that cold water rush over your teeth and tongue and into your throat. Deep swallows, gorging yourself on the goodness of it, taking all the pleasure there was to be had from it. All the chaos of the trailer park was in your past and your future when you headed back. It was not there now, and the traffic on the highway, and the farmer with his shotgun, and the wild dogs. This was you, and the cold brightness of the water. I wasn't getting and spending in those days. I had a few quarters I earned for my allowance, and immediately dropped into the Gorf machine. True enough. Sometimes I bought those cupcakes to eat while I played or watched. But those delectable hostess treats never filled me to dissatisfaction. Not back then. Back then they were only pleasant, just sweet and good, like chocolate at its best. Chocolate with a little cream in the middle. And the water, the simple, cold, clean, fresh water was the best of all. So good that a whole town would come down here to appreciate it a simple pipe jammed into the ground making the world better the world was not too much with us in those days it was too much with the grown-ups probably but i didn't see that i only saw the simple pleasures that sent my spirit soaring and the hard nights of sleeping and the majesty of rain on the roof and the terrorizing thunder i only saw the long road ahead, the empty fields to left and right, and the spring somewhere in the world, before or behind, late or soon. I had not given my heart away to anyone. It was still mine, thumping hard in my chest, and my eyes were wide open. And I saw the world for what it was, full of miracle and mystery. A father and a mother, mine, ours. I didn't have a sea to gaze at but I had this crummy little pond but I could see Proteus nevertheless coming out of the water and when I closed my eyes I could hear the song of Old Triton and he doesn't play that song anymore not for me he's been out of my life for decades but it doesn't matter I could hear it then and I can hear it now. Hmm. There we go. Sound of Triton. Sounds a lot like our History of Literature theme song. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wordsworth. We need to do some more Wordsworth, spend some more time with him. We've spent so much time with Shakespeare and so little time with Wordsworth. It's all out of whack. And yet, guess what, people? Our next episode is going to be Shakespeare. <laughs> I had a conversation with a wonderful guest, and we really dove into Hamlet. And it's about as much fun as a podcaster can have. If this episode seemed a little bleak, hopefully it didn't. But if it did, stay tuned, because the next one is bliss. That's sublime. That's sublimity, right? Right. We had the, the terror to let us enjoy the beauty. Okay, that will all be on Monday. You can learn more at historyofliterature.com or sign up on our Patreon account at patreon.com literature. My thanks to all those poets and other superheroes who have generously signed up already. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.